Hi there, and welcome to the No Ordinary People podcast, where we honor the stories of strangers and learn what people really wish others understood about them. My name is April Coleman, and I'm the host of this podcast, and this is episode eight. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to let you know that next week will look a little different on the podcast. Instead of a show releasing on Tuesday morning in your podcast app, we're actually going to be hosting a live show on the Facebook page. We're going to have a panel of awesome people and we're going to be discussing all things Juneteenth. Whether you're like me and Juneteenth is a relatively new idea for you or Juneteenth is something you've been celebrating your whole life, this is going to be an awesome conversation and I really hope you will join us on the Facebook Live going to be Tuesday, June 15th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And then the recording will be available through the podcast app by next Thursday. Now let's talk about today's show, where my guest is my good friend Katya Baxter. Katya is originally from St. Petersburg, Russia, and when she was 16, she came on a plane by herself and flew to Boise, Idaho to visit some friends. But instead of it just being a two-week-long trip, God had something else in store for her. She ended up staying here in Boise and going to college. She then moved to Toronto, which is where she really found and cultivated her own faith, and then went to San Francisco, where instead of leaving her heart, she found her soulmate. Now she and her family are back in Boise. Katya's most recent adventure involves putting on a teacher's hat and becoming a self-taught, pandemic-induced homeschooling mom for her biracial daughter. When she's not teaching, she practices nutrition and helps turn picky eaters into kids who love to eat all kinds of food and stay healthy. On the show, Katya and I talk about her childhood in Russia, her experience of moving here to the States, and she shares pretty vulnerably about the things she did not know about race in the U.S. until marrying a Black man and raising her biracial daughter. I also want to issue a content warning since Katya does also share about her journey with eating disorders and how that impacted her life. The conversations that we have about mindset, faith, race, empathy, humility, it's such an important conversation. I know that Katya's story will be such a gift to so many of you. So let's get to the show. Hi, Katya. Welcome to the show. Hi, April. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. We've been talking about doing this for a little while. I'm so glad that we were able to get this interview scheduled and both of us have children somewhere running around in the Mm -hmm. background. (laughs) So I'm excited that we could lock ourselves in a room somewhere and get some Zoom face-to-face time to have this conversation. Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) So I have to admit, when I first met you, I did not know that you were famous. You have a TEDx talk. You participated in TEDx Boise, which in my mind makes you famous. I got an email after I met you actually. And then there is your face with your link to it. Cause I have subscribed to TEDx updates. I was like, oh my gosh, I know her. Tell me about that experience. How did you get involved with that? How were you approached? What was that whole experience like? Oh my goodness. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling me famous. Um, (laughs) I don't necessarily consider myself famous, but I am. You're Boise famous. I'm Boise famous. Okay. Um, I am certainly proud of what what I did, um, if you can say that, because it did take me a lot of work and a lot of effort, something that maybe contrary to what you might believe it 
public speaking does not come naturally to me. Mm. And I do have to put a fair amount of work into speaking every time I have the opportunity. But it's funny, I have this love-hate relationship with public speaking. Even though I don't necessarily enjoy it, I keep finding myself looking for opportunities to do it anyway. <laughs> and, and it's really strange because... For example, I'm afraid of heights, but I don't really seek out opportunities to jump off the plane. But with the public speaking, I do these things to myself. And I find that once I do that, once I speak, I get this extreme satisfaction from Mm. having accomplished something that comes not, that doesn't come naturally to me, that is more difficult to me. With TEDx Boise, this was something that was on my bucket list for the last couple of years. I had this idea and I thought, hmm, interesting, maybe it would work for TEDx talk sometime. And then I moved to Boise. I got on, I checked out, there was a TEDx Boise and I got on their mailing list, just like you. Hmm. And then I got this email for auditions. So I put in my idea and I sent it off and I didn't think anything of it. I didn't expect any response. And then all of a sudden I get this response a week later and they want me to come in for a live audition. I go in and again, I just, I'm having fun with it. So I don't think anything of it. And all of a sudden, a week later, they call me back and they say, you're in. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I saw TEDx voice in, well, TEDx in general, people who speak, that was a huge privilege. And that's how I treated it. It was a huge privilege to me. And I was just really excited. But unfortunately, COVID happened. Uh, We were supposed to speak at Jump last April, so 2020, and that didn't happen. And then the organizers did a really nice thing. They organized the event at the Shakespeare Festival stage. Mm. And it was beautiful. It was last October. And so we all did it. What was interesting is that this was the first time, it was kind of a breakthrough for me. It was the first time when I went up on stage and I, I told myself that this is the one time that you get, that you're not going to be nervous. You are not going to be trying to suppress those butterflies and focus on that the whole 17 minutes that you're up on that stage. Mm. And instead girl, you're going to come out there and you're just going to enjoy every single minute of it Hmm. because you will not probably get to do it ever again. And I had to change this mindset. So I went up. That's what I was thinking. Like, oh my goodness, I'm on the red dot. Come on, this is so great. (laughs) (laughs) That's so exciting. And, And instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I have three huge cameras staring at me. I was like, you have three huge cameras staring at you right now. This is pretty awesome. And so I did this. But you have to understand the fear of public speaking has been something that I've been working on for over 20 years. It Mm. comes from my childhood, from the school that I went to. And if you told me 15 years ago that I was going to do a TEDx talk, I would have laughed at you. And then I would probably would have lost my sleep for the next 15 years. (laughs) Literally, that's yeah. that's how afraid of public speaking I used to be. And I'm making progress little by little. So that's the story of my TEDx experience. And it was a great, great experience. I'm very thankful for it. That's so awesome. And we're definitely, there will be a link to your TED Talk in the show notes. But I do want to know a little bit more about, you say it's something you've been working on and working through. What are some practical steps you've been taking to kind of address that fear? Practicing a lot, trying to put myself out there, Mm. focusing on my audience, 
instead of on the content necessarily. You know, you, you have to prepare. If you know your content, then you can focus on your audience and be excited about bringing your message to your audience. And so when you start getting into that headspace, it becomes easier to calm the nerves, I find. Yeah, that's so good. I, the same's true in my writing. That's been a focus and something that I've been coached on a lot is think mm-hmm. of your audience. Who's your reader and what do they need? What what service are you providing? What gift are you giving to them? You know, what solutions are you offering? And when you focus on them, it does take a lot of the pressure off of you that I think you've been given a gift of speaking in this content and then you get to share it with the people who need it. And when you, like you said, that mindset mindset mm-hmm. shift is such a, is so important. So that was really neat to hear you talk through that whole process. I think it's so funny that mm-hmm. you, know, you were like, oh, I sent off the email. I didn't think about it. Oh, I went in for a live interview and I for a live audition and I didn't think about it. Like, at that point, I would have been like, oh my gosh, but you were just kind of going with the flow. And I love that that was kind of just the way that you were processing through that. Yeah, I think it's interesting mm-hmm. too, because you obviously have a gift. You're a gifted writer, gifted speaker, yet there's this immense fear that you've had to walk or that you've had to battle against. And I think that's such an interesting, Mm -hmm. just kind of general point that just because we're afraid of something, or even we might not think we're good at it, doesn't mean that's not a gift that we've actually been given that we're meant to give away. That is, that is very true. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. Especially Mm -hmm. like what you said about it's stuff from your childhood or stuff that had happened to you or with you before. And, um, I, I, I believe very strongly in an actual enemy that's trying to keep light out of the darkness, you know? So that's of course where we might be most attacked is that area of you're gifted in this area. So I'm going to go after it because I want you to believe you can't do it. Yeah, that is so true. So it's really Mm -hmm. awesome to see someone like you, who's, you know, spoken truth into that dark darkness and said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it well. And I'm going to overcome this fear. That's so great. So you are the first guest on this show that was born somewhere other than the United States. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born? What was your childhood like compared to those of us who grew up in the United States? Well, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Russia. At the time, uh, this was still called Leningrad. And I was the last generation to grow up in the Soviet Union before it fell apart. Okay. So I spent 16 years in Soviet Union. And, you know, it, I mean, everything was different. I don't see any similarities between my childhood and my daughter's childhood, except for I think we were both pretty happy. And mm. regardless of the challenges and a completely different world that I grew up in. I was a happy kid because I didn't know any difference. And I think that's what it is like for any child. We just don't know the difference. I grew up with my grandparents because my mom was working and that was something that was normal for families to do. If a parent, usually both parents worked, that was a tradition and a normal thing. And if you had parents, then it was really great because they would be taking care of you. So we lived with my, my sister and I, we lived with my grandparents throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. We had six day long weeks. 
Mm. And Sunday was the day off. And then on Sundays, we would go spend with my mom. Looking back at it now, what I remember the most is going to school. School was pretty much taking up all of our time. Mm. My one extracurricular activity was tennis, something that I enjoyed doing. I put a lot of work into it. I had to take two buses for an hour each way to get to and from practice. Now, those lessons were given to me for free. Uh, this wasn't any additional investment. And it was really something that I really enjoyed doing. So my grandmother went with me and spent all that time with me doing my tennis. But other than that, it was school. And school was very intense. It was just really, really difficult. And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of homework. But I remember coming home from school, doing homework, uh, going to tennis and, you know, going to bed. That's it. We had no entertainment to distract us, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> there was no movie theaters to go to. We had five channels on our black and white TV. <laughs> Four out of them played meetings of Communist Party. And then one channel was replaying Nutcracker Ballet over wow. and over again. On Sundays, occasionally, they would throw us a movie for kids that we were allowed to watch. That was the one time we were allowed to watch TV and maybe in the evening for some you know, bedtime show. But that was it. My grandmother was extremely, extremely strict with us. She didn't allow us to spend any time. That would be a waste. No mm. phone conversations, nothing. So we had friends. We had friends. We would go for a walk. And it was rain or shine or snow. St. Petersburg is a very cold place. Nine out of 12 months, it's cold and snowy and gray. You go to school at 8.30 a.m., it's dark. You come back at 4 p.m., it's dark. So that was our life. And again, looking back at it, I'm thinking it was okay because I was well taken care of. And I certainly didn't know the challenges that my grandparents and my mom had. What's helping me now as a parent is knowing that my grandmother, literally, she made me do certain things. She made me learn certain things. She uh, made me play tennis. She made, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't all fun and games all the time. However, now when I'm feeling a little bit sorry for my child or when I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm pushing her too hard. Oh, <laughs> you know, she's, she's too tired. Poor thing. I remember how I was brought up. And yeah. I realized that what I'm giving her is not even half of what I was put through yeah. in a good way, not put through in a negative way. And I know that she's going to be okay. That really helps me to get in a different headspace and just kind of push her sometimes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we had very different <laughs> upbringings. You know, it's just so <laughs> fascinating to listen to you talk about what that looked like for you. So you, when you were 16 years old, you got on an airplane and you came to Boise. What were you coming here for? I came here as a visitor. I came for a couple of weeks to see the life in Boise, Idaho. There was one family that invited me to come and stay with them. After their son came to visit us in St. Petersburg uh, with a mission trip. Okay. So he stayed at our apartment for a week and then his family, as a reciprocal gesture, they invited me to come and stay with them. 
just to see what life in America was like. And at the time, my mom was struggling. Soviet Union was falling apart. It was really difficult. There was literally no food. I was about to finish high school, try to get into a university. And there was something that you need to understand that in Russia at the time, uh, yeah, education was one of those things that was non-negotiable. If before you could get in, into a university by taking exams, a, a set of exams, very difficult, but you can actually get in with your own knowledge, so to speak. At that time, things started changing and mm -hmm. getting into university was taking a bribe or two. And my mom just couldn't she couldn't do it. Mm. And so she was thinking that there might be some other options at the time. My mom used to work as a doctor on a ship when she mm. was 21 years old. That was her first job that was assigned to her by the government. That's how things were at the mm. time. You graduate from college or university and you get assigned a job. And she was assigned a job on a trade ship, which was in the far east of the country, nine time zones away from her home. Wow. She was 21. She was sent there by herself. She just, she was newly married. But what she got out of it, she traveled. She had the chance to travel and see other places. And that's when her eyes opened and she saw that there was a different world out there. Mm. When it was time for me to graduate from high school, she just thought, we'll just try going to a different place and see what happens. Mm. And literally, we have no long-term plan. I went for two weeks. I had a ticket to fly back in two weeks. And just one thing led to another. I went to high school. I was able to change my visa to a student visa. Hmm. In high school, I started playing tennis. That's when those two-hour commutes <laughs> all came into play. And I realized that, wow, this wasn't for nothing. Hmm. I started playing tennis and I got a scholarship to go to college so it just kind of kept going and going. And before I knew it, I was here in Idaho for seven years, having graduated with a bachelor's degree. And that's how I ended up here and staying. And my mom was able to come a few years later to live here in Boise as well. That's incredible. Did you ever go back? I'd never went back. No. At first, it was difficult because of the visa situation. Mm -hmm. When you come like that on a visa and on a not, let's say you're not, you don't have a green card or you're not a citizen, unless until you get a passport, you kind of, you have this uncertainty about mm -hmm. your status. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what's going to happen. And so at that time, because things were so shaky still in Russia, I never went back and then just, you know, then life began and I never had a chance to go back, but I'd love to, I would mm -hmm. really love to go back. Especially now when I have my family and I would love for them to see what it's like and mm -hmm. where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I imagine it's different now than it yes. was when you left. Absolutely. It's yeah. it's probably going to be, well, it will be unrecognizable in many different ways, physically, <laughs> in some ways, but people are different. The next generation is different. Mm -hmm. um, I would probably feel like a foreigner there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So you say you'd feel like a foreigner there too. Do you feel like a foreigner here? I don't feel as a foreigner here, but I do feel you know, I'm not 100% here, mm -hmm. nor I am 100% there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, it does. So after you graduated from school, you ended up moving to Toronto. What took you there? 
I couldn't extend my visa any longer after I graduated from college. And it, I couldn't go back to Russia at that point. Um, I didn't have anything to go back to. Mm. So I applied to a graduate program mm. at the York University in Toronto, and I got accepted. And so I moved there just mm-hmm. to see, <laughs> see if, I can, if, if I can make something happen mm-hmm. there. That was the first time when I moved completely alone. I had no support over there. I was 21. It was the most challenging time of my life, but it was also the best time of my life. At the end of the day, the most, the beginning of my healing, let's put it that way. Hmm. When you moved, when you were 16, you're a child still at that point. You did have mm-hmm. a family that was offering you a good amount of support here in Boise. You were living with them and they were really, su- mm-hmm. you know, supportive. So between that and then moving to Toronto on your own, what was your mental health like? How are you processing all of this change, knowing the country that you came from was kind of falling apart? You were here very young by yourself and then moving again to another country completely by yourself. What was your mental state like through all of that? I was a mess when I went to Toronto emotionally. I may not have realized that at the time. When I moved to Boise and when my mom got here, I was 17, I was going through that teenage time. Mm -hmm. It's difficult as it is Mm -hmm. when you find yourself in a new environment like this. It was really difficult. I had to learn the language. I desperately wanted to fit in. Desperately. Mm -hmm. I changed my name into Kate so people would have easier time to pronounce it. Wow. At the same time, I came from a place where there was no food pretty much. So I wanted to eat and Mm -hmm. I was eating everything that was in front of me. I gained a little bit of weight. Mm. Somebody who meant well, who wanted to help me, said to me one day that you're so isolated and you don't have friends, maybe you should lose some weight and you know that might help you. Hmm. It wasn't helpful to me because that turned into an eating disorder for me. And I think it was just the desire for me to control things, to control things that were in my control because I've just felt so out of control. I felt out of control at school. I felt out of control with my mother who was trying to figure it out on her own. And that was extremely challenging to her now that I, I'm an adult and I can see why it would have been so difficult to her. And I just needed, I wanted to get some control of my over my life. And um, so I became an anorexic. It was an expression of my weakened nervous system. I was having some serious psychological problems. So when I went to Toronto, that's where I was. I actually couldn't wait to leave. I was so tired of just this cycle, constant cycle of eating, of not eating, of bad relationship with the people that I love. And so I was really happy to leave, yet I knew I was going over there by myself with my eating disorder, not knowing anything or anyone. And I was just about to start going to school and study something that I wasn't really passionate about. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know at the time. But I went with the flow. And throughout all of it, I was trying to find myself. It took good 10 years for me to start sensing who I was. Most importantly, I realized that everything that I 
learned in Boise, going to church with the family that uh, helped me, it was starting to come together in my own mind. And I was starting to come into my own faith and realize who God was for me and Mm -hmm. what it meant for me and my life. Did you go to church at all growing up? I did not. I became a believer in Russia when we had that exchange with Young Life. That was the first time when I learned about God and who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. Um, then I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't have a, a huge transformation. But I started learning more when we started going to church with this family that sponsored me. But by the time I finished college, I just felt that there was something that wasn't connecting for me in my heart with mm-hmm. the God that I was being shown. It just wasn't jiving. When I was going to church here, this is where my learning about God began. And I just remember that throughout much of it, I felt guilty of doing the wrong thing. Mm. As a teenager, I just remember that constant sense of shame and guilt. Yeah. <laughs> it was you know, coming on the weekend to church. It just was constant feeling of guilt. And, and I couldn't quite understand what was so joyful about being a believer. Mm. And so that was that big disconnect. And I know a lot of kids go through it. Uh, it's nothing new, but that's how I left. In Toronto, I found this church that was very different. It was, in fact, it was called this the church for people who are not into church, mm-hmm. uh, the meeting house. And that was the place where for the first time, I just felt so free to be who I am and come and listen and uh, not really think about what I did or how Jesus may see me and how he might judge me, but just come as I am and listen and soak it all in. And I think that's where that whole healing for me began. I was just soaking it in, soaking it in. And And in all of that, looking back at it now, I realized that as many mistakes that I've made in Toronto, living in Toronto, as much of testing of different things that I've done, testing of different religions, he never left me. Mm. He never left me in that verse that he will never leave you or forsake you. I feel like that's been my verse because he never has. Mm. Uh, Even after I went through baptism, even after I told him so many times and repented so many times and I accepted him so many times as my God, and even after all of that, making all those mistakes, he still never left me or forsook me. Mm. And that, that is amazing to me now looking back at it. Yeah. That is amazing. I love that that you found a place, you know, there in Toronto. You're moving to this place all by yourself and probably have a good amount of fear, you know, of like you said, you're moving with this eating disorder, moving to a place with no support system that you know of yet. And then to have found the meeting house and know that that's just a place where you could come with all your baggage, all your stuff. And just sit and learn who Jesus is. I mean, I I love too because you've shared the meeting house with my family. You know, th- several weeks ago, mm-hmm. months ago, and that's become our online attendance. You know, where we go to church mm-hmm. now in Toronto mm-hmm. <laughs> from Boise <laughs> because we too have just found such 
truth and love from from what they're teaching and and how they are growing people into you know disciples and I think I don't want to put words in your mouth but I think what you were experiencing in high school and college I've kind of experienced in the last five years so (laughs) um of this disconnect of this can't be all there is to it it can't just be you know Jesus loves you and that's the end you know that it feel it felt for me like the shallowness too of okay but like you said then I just feel bad that I'm not living up to Jesus and mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do to, with other people so I think that was one of the things that um we've grown in and it sounds like you grew in and the meeting house helped with you know learning that the gospel is actually quite, it's a lot more full than that, you know, that it's um, how we care and love other people is a big part of that too. And accepting that grace for ourselves. Um, So I'm so glad that, that you found it, that you shared it with us and that it was such a huge part of your healing. Um, I find it to be extremely humbling now looking back at my experience in Toronto because I am not a person today who I was back then. The only person I can attribute this is to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I can say that with complete conviction because the change that he's made is something that I would have never been able to go through myself. And I'm humbled by it. And I'm also grateful that he's given me those experiences because I feel that I can be less judgmental of those who are, might be going through the same things right now. You know, that, that first, that those who are forgiven little love little. Mm. And I feel like I've been forgiven much. I'm still working on the loving part. Oh my goodness, I am. I, I will be for the rest of my life asking him to teach me to love better. But I just feel that I've been forgiven so much. And, and that helps me when I interact with those who are might be going through the same things mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, so good. So where did you experience healing and growth with your eating disorder specifically? Uh, definitely process. It took about 10 years. Uh, at a certain point, I just got so tired of it. Uh, it was exhausting. It was exhausting mm-hmm. to constantly think about food, to constantly be afraid of food. I tried just about every diet. There is nothing worth. And at a certain point, I was just so tired. I thought, you know, I, I'm done. I'm just going to eat. And I'm going to eat what I feel comfortable eating things that I grew up with. And it's simple food. And I started doing that. I had structure. That's the one thing I did for myself. I decided, okay, you're going to eat every three hours a little bit, but you're going to eat just normal food Mm -hmm. and eat as much as you need to and really try to tune into the process of eating. And little by little, little by little, I remember how my cravings went away. You know, I went from being anorexic to having a binge eating disorder, which is basically you're just eating, eating, eating because you've been so hungry and you're eating and you're not purging and and you feel guilty. So that's where I was at the time. And I just stopped caring. I was in Toronto for about seven, eight years at the time. And I realized that, hey, I still had friends. People still loved me the way I was. That part opened my eyes to the fact that, hey, you don't have to do this to make people like you. 
Mm. I think that thought that you might have friends if you lose some weight, it stayed with me somewhere in my subconscious. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious, but to me it wasn't. And I realized it once I looked around and I saw all these people, they didn't care what I looked like. We all just had a great time together. And the more I saw the change in myself, the more interested I got into looking at food as as something that can help you feel better. And Mm -hmm. I started kind of studying it a little bit more. And before I knew it, I went back to school to study nutrition. And that's where you found what you were actually passionate about. Yes. Um, And that's what your TED Talks about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you found this passion with nutrition and then that kind of transitioned into feeding kids and helping others learn how to do that well. So what does that look like and why is that something that's so important to you? Yes. So I studied nutrition. I realized just how important it was for me. And so I knew what I was supposed to eat. And certainly when my daughter came around, I knew what I was supposed to feed her. Oh my goodness. I was the nutritionist. Mm -hmm. I I had a plan made up for my daughter (laughs) once she started, once she transitioned to solids. And that was funny because I was quickly put into place (laughs) with my little nutritional plan for her. Because my kid refused to breastfeed in the beginning. That was kind of the first wake up call. Mm. Okay, you might not be nursing her for two years as you planned. And then when she refused to eat solids, just like any other kid would have those purees that Mm -hmm. I also made myself all (laughs) from organic vegetables. (laughs) Yeah. And after I ate them all myself, I realized that I need to change my plan. (laughs) My plan wasn't working (laughs) so well. That's how I decided. I not decided. I was forced to start learning about not necessarily what to feed my child, but how to feed that child. Because we, you know, I realized that we all know what we're supposed to feed our kids. The question is, and the challenge is, how do we get that piece of broccoli into their mouths? Yeah. <laughs> because that's the real challenge. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is psychological mm-hmm. and we don't realize it. So I went back, got certified in children's feeding. And now, you know, I've been feeding my daughter for eight years. Uh, it's something that I'm practicing myself. And I find it extremely important because having gone through an eating disorder myself, I wouldn't want to have anyone go through it. And certainly I don't want my daughter to pick it up at any time. We have a big issue with children's health right now. And I do believe that learning how to feed your child correctly and teaching them to really develop a healthy relationship with food, that's what's going to take them through it all. It's not to say they're never going to have challenges, but to build that foundation where they can listen to their body when they know what they need, how much they need. Once we lay that foundation, it will help them for the rest of their lives. And that's what I'm so passionate about. I really, my desire, my deep, deep desire is to teach parents, teach moms to help their kids to really tune in to their bodies and into their ability, natural ability to eat everything. It just doesn't have to be this hard. You have an article on your blog 
about the four essentials of mealtime and that, and my kids are eight and 11. So, you know, not tiny, teeny kids, but those four essentials, I know it's talking about feeding kids, but it's been great just for our family for adults, you know, that you talk about making food and eating simple, intuitive, social, and enjoyable. And we talked about mindset before it's helped with my mindset around mealtime and eating. And I know that what you're sharing is helpful. Those four things are very feasible. You know what I mean? Those four elements. Yeah. Focusing less on the what and focusing more on the how, like you said, has been life-giving for me. So thank you for that. And oh, well, I'm glad. Yeah, yes. I can I can tell you for sure that that focus is definitely something that's needed and helpful. So I'm glad that you're leaning into that calling and that passion because I think you're helping a lot of people. So I want to kind of come back to your story. You were in Toronto for seven to eight years and then you went to San Francisco and you met your husband. I did. So tell us about that. How did you meet? Well, very traditionally, let me tell you, we met online. Oh, it is traditional (laughs) now, isn't it? It is traditional now. Yeah. Yes, we met online. In fact, my sister, I guess she had the vision. She signed me up for an online service. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know she was doing that? I did not know. Oh I did not God. know. I started getting the emails and I then I thought, what where is this coming from? And of course, my curious self, I <laughs> clicked on a couple profiles and I saw this man and I decided that I why not I'll go on a date. And that date, I remember we met in San Francisco in the city, and that date went from coffee to lunch to a walk and then to dinner and then to dessert and tea. And it just went on and on and on. And we talked and we talked and talked. Yeah, it was amazing. And my husband is African-American. And at the time, I didn't even notice. I didn't notice Mm. that he had a different skin color. It wasn't on my radar at all. I came from Toronto where I had friends from all over the world, first, second, third generation immigrants, Uh, different colors, different languages. And I just kind of forgot about all of that. San Francisco, same thing. There was, I remember how many times I would walk into a cafe and I would be the only white person there. Mm -hmm. So it it didn't even enter my mind and I didn't pay attention. And how soon after that were you married? A year. A year. And a year later you were married to him. That's amazing. It's interesting that you say it just never really entered your mind that you're entering into an interracial marriage. Like, why could this possibly be something that I need to be aware of? Aware of, exactly. Yes. Obama was elected president that year. We have a black president. No problem. We're all past this. Yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But I know as your friend, we've had discussions where it ended up not being as little of an issue as (laughs) maybe you originally thought. So what have been some of the challenges that you found that you didn't necessarily see coming? Well, I think my first real eye-opening experience to this subject was about 2014 during Ferguson shooting. There were some protests in downtown San Francisco. My husband was working. Just to give you a picture, he's in finance. He wears a suit to work. He did not participate in that protest. Mm-hmm. But he came back home one night and he said, listen, if I don't show up one of these nights... If I don't come home, you would need to go and look in police precincts for Mm -hmm. me. And I remember I looked at him and I just, I said, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Why would anybody be interested in you? And he didn't say anything to me. 
he just kind of looked at me, walked away, and I was just overwhelmed. I couldn't understand where it came from. My husband is an extremely gracious man. Mm. Now, years later, and we're talking years later, right? Six years, seven years has passed. I now finally, I see just how white privileged that comment that I made was. Mm -hmm. White privilege wasn't on my radar. I didn't know the term at the time. I was oblivious. Absolutely. I knew nothing. Now I just, I could see that this is what white privilege looks like. It doesn't even enter my mind Mm. that somebody might be concerned with being arrested for nothing. Right. Uh, And it's not even, it's my husband of all people. Right. Right. So that was the very first time when I realized that hmm, this might not be as easy (laughs) flowing situation as I would have expected. And I I had no expectations. I thought that there would be no problems. Yeah. How long Um, have you been married at that point? We've been married for four years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What I realized now looking back at it, and all of these things came to me in the past year, by the way, I started really looking into it in the past year and trying to learn as much as I can. What I realized is that my husband, he couldn't talk to me at the time. He couldn't say anything. He walked away because he realized that nothing that he would say would really stick with me because I was in a different world. And so he couldn't talk to me. It's like, it was like throwing pearls at the pigs and I was the pig. Mm. There was nothing he could say to me. Hmm. And it took all these years and this specifically this past year for me to learn and to start putting myself in that position, in those shoes, to understand that I was just living in complete oblivious ignorance Hmm. all these years. So what was it that triggered that change for you in the last year, do you think? George Floyd, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What was it about it? Because you first remember having that thought when the Ferguson protests were happening because of Michael Brown. And there's been several since. So what was it about this time, do you think? Because I don't think you're alone, right? There's so many Mm -hmm. of us that were like, this was the moment of reckoning. What do you think it was about it that really finally shifted that mindset for you? I think it was the whole act of watching Mm -hmm. someone killing a human being for eight and a half minutes. Yeah. And it finally clicked. It doesn't matter what George Floyd was or he wasn't. Mm -hmm. Derek Chauvin was not to kill him. Mm -hmm. And finally that got through to me. Mm -hmm. And then did that open up to learning about more things for you? Do you think, I know you've shared some of the things that, you know, you're focusing on with your daughter, you're educating, and it sounds in our conversations we have in the past, like you're kind of learning alongside as well, like so many of us. And we're now teaching our kids that we're learning alongside them, the realities of what this has been like for a long time. I'm learning. When we did the Build a Bridge group And that time with reading that book, that was one of the big shifts for me Mm. um, when I started to intentionally kind of dip my feet into this whole subject. Mm -hmm. This whole experience, it made me realize that I think the hardest truth to accept was that it makes absolutely no difference who I'm married to. Even though I'm married to a Black man, it doesn't make me automatically a not racist person. Mm. That was probably the hardest truth that I had to admit. Mm. As someone who didn't even grow up here, 
I can say I have nothing to do with this. But at the same time, I'm a human being. And if I want to make the world around me a better place, and now I have my skin in the game, <laughs> I have to. I, I cannot close my eyes on this. Right. I have a husband and I have a daughter. I have to push through and I have to keep learning. It was very hard for me to hear my husband say to me that George Floyd, other shootings, he told to me several times, he said, I am not surprised. Mm. That was hard to hear. He said, you are probably shocked and you're surprised right now. I've been in your shoes. I've been shocked and surprised for a time. Now I'm appalled, but I'm not surprised. And you get there too sometime. Yeah. And that broke my heart. Mm. I do not want to get there. I do not want to be not surprised. I don't want my daughter to be not surprised. We can do better. I mean, we must do better. And I realize now that we can't do better if we white people don't come alongside our black brothers and sisters. We need to come along and walk with them and stand up for them in order to see some change. Yeah. Of course, it is systemic. Of course, it's bigger than us. But then at the same time, okay, if the systems change, but people don't change, nothing will change. Nothing will change. And like I said, I, I'm all in. Yeah. I do not want my daughter to be experiencing the same things. Yeah. Yeah, because I can imagine if when you got married, the racial component wasn't something that necessarily entered your mind. It probably wasn't something that you considered a whole lot, that you were going to be raising a biracial child. Yeah. Your daughter and my daughter are the same age. They're great friends. My daughter is so grateful for yours and just loves her so much. But you and I, we're having different parenting experiences and we live in the same city. Right. You know, when you're raising a biracial black daughter and I'm not, there's so many things that you have to consider that I don't. And I think that's such an important point that you made about white privilege. It's not about necessarily what I have or what we have as white people. It's what we don't have to worry about just as much. We don't mm -hmm. have to worry about those things and we were able to be blind to it for so long. But now, like you said, you literally have skin in the game, your daughter, you're raising her in this country. So what are some things that you have to keep in mind, maybe that I don't or people like me don't? And how has this last year especially been something that has been challenging for you on the parenting front? Well, last year, I launched myself into a new career as a homeschool mom, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. It's, it's my side gig. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't pay so well, but man, it takes no. a long time. <laughs> That's right. Um, and what I found was quite, there are a couple of interesting things that have to do with education. I'll give you an example. So one of the books that we were reading this year was History of George Washington. It was a kid's book with great illustrations. And I looked at, I looked through it before we read it. Nothing really jumped at me, but I didn't give it that close of a look as it turned out, because when we started reading it, there were a couple of illustrations that made me very uncomfortable. Uh, one of them was a picture of George Washington dressed in a nice suit uh, on a white horse with his wife wearing a white gown. There was this mansion in the background and in between the mansion and the people, there was this field with cotton or corn, I don't know. And in that field, there were pictured these little heads. Mm -hmm. They were of dark color. Mm -hmm. 
And the text said, well, George Washington had this beautiful house and uh, something along those lines, and his plantation produced a lot of uh, good crops. And here I am reading it to my seven-year-old. And she said, who are these people? And so I, you know, I started explaining it to her and I realized that the things that I need to to explain are that really the fields weren't producing the wonderful crops. The people working the fields were working very hard so that the crops would grow. Mm. And these people were slaves and what slaves were. And then we turn the page and there is this another uh, mansion and there's a ball and these people with their kids and nice dresses are dancing inside of the house. And there's these little black kids dressed in rags standing outside peeking into the windows. Mm. So my daughter is at the point where she puts things together. Mm-hmm. My initial desire is to say, look, I want to tell her that this is not the way it is. This used to be. This used to be, but this is not how it is right now. Yeah. In the meantime, we go outside and uh, we see a truck that is flying at Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. And my daughter again asks me a question. What is the flag? What am I to say? Then there's a question. Well, mom, if we were living in those times, would I be like one of those kids? My heart is in pieces when I hear things like that. If I was reading that same book to my kids, you know, we're studying American history right now as well. Would I have, would I have even noticed? I like to think that I would have, maybe now, especially, maybe not, you know, five years ago, but maybe now, but I don't, I don't know for sure if I could say, gosh, there's something, there's something problematic about this, you know, because I'm not reading it with my black children, I'm reading it with my white children. So it makes me wonder, but one of the things that I've heard and I, I kind of have used to respond when people say, oh my gosh, you're reading your kids a book about the Tulsa race massacre. Isn't that horrible? You know, isn't that too heavy for them? It's too much. You're teaching your kids too much. Mm -hmm. It's like, if your daughter is old enough to experience racism, And if those kids were old enough to be killed in that massacre, my kids are old enough to learn about it, you know? So I keep thinking, keeping that in mind too, that I want my kids to know the truth about the history of our country, you know, and the current state of our country. Cause I didn't, I didn't know it wasn't what I was presented with and it wasn't um, something that I saw out until you know the last five years so I I just kept thinking that while you were saying that you know that this isn't just something for you and your family to be aware of concerned of we all need to do this if we want to see any meaningful change we all need to be owning it just as much as you are It makes me understand with that much more clarity what this repentance that we're talking about, what it looks like. It's not me apologizing for something that I didn't do. It's not me feeling guilty about something that I don't have anything to do with, but it's that sense of deep brokenness about the things that happened to these people, to the people that my daughter is related to. Mm -hmm. 
it's me wanting to embrace her and say that we're going to make this better, that this, this will get better, that this is, not, this is much better already. And we're not living in the world of 200 years ago, no, but we're still seeing the remnants of it, unfortunately, and the compassion that comes with it towards the person who might feel that way. I think that's what it's about. That's what I was shown this past year. And I know, I know it's my daughter, it's my kid. <laughs> I'm not asking everybody to feel the same way that I feel. But I just want to say that it makes sense because it didn't before. And I think it, do, it doesn't make sense for many people that the question of why do we need to repent? Why do we need to realize that there was something wrong and, we, and there is something that we may be connected even indirectly? It's just this general compassion and empathy. I think that it's very human. That's what this last year, that's how it's been challenging for me. And that's what I've learned. In addition to realizing that my approach that I thought was normal, being colorblind, mm. that's something also that I've learned the past year. I thought that colorblind was going to be helpful in me and how I raised my daughter. And I was proven very wrong on that too. And <laughs> at age four, she looked at herself and she looked at me and she said, mommy, our skin are different colors. Um, mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and is your skin better than mine in a sense that, you know, I'm a mom and everything. And she wants to be like her mother right yeah. now at this time. She's not colorblind. <laughs> why, why would I be colorblind? Right. Um, it, it's not going to be helpful to her. And so I, in my parenting now, I'm intentional about building her up, about speaking of finding people who have contributed, great African-American people who have contributed to the development of this country in, in different areas. Mm -hmm. We are intentional about finding friends who look like her and who don't look like her, but who are of, of different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. We're very intentional about that. Uh, but I'm learning. I'm constantly learning. And I feel like I'm just chipping the tip of the iceberg. I remember coming to school one day, it was back in California, we're living in a pretty white community and the mom, a white mom comes up to me and she says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My boy just, I asked him to show me the new girl in his class and he just said, oh, that's that brown girl. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And here I was, I was thinking, is this something that you need to apologize to me for? And like, <laughs> Literally, right. I, I had no idea. Is this wrong? Am I supposed to be wrong? offended? So am I supposed to be offended? Yeah. So I, so I went back to my husband and I asked him. <laughs> so these are just the basic things that, you know, and I think we're all, we all have these questions as yeah. white people and we feel uncomfortable where we might not need to be uncomfortable. And, yeah. and then there are certainly things, places where we should probably you know, be careful when we talk. Yeah, it takes so much humility. And that's what I hear coming from you is this posture of humility of there's so much I don't know. And I just am going to keep learning rather than yeah. the way I feel and the things I know are sufficient. You know, it takes yeah. a lot of humility to say, I don't know. And I want to learn, you know, and look for the resources yeah. to, to learn yourself. And 
I think the colorblind thing is such a good example of that. You know, there's so many people, because that's how I was raised and it it was the loving thing to do, right? It wasn't out of hate. It was, no, I don't see you as any different than me. And I didn't realize at the time, and it took humility and being open to learning that people of color saying, you're erasing my identity. (laughs) When you say, I don't see color, it's like, then you don't see me. Right. And And it, I mean, that was really eye-opening, but it did take being open to hearing that and accepting it, you know, rather than just saying, no, the way I'm handling this is just fine. Yes. And I, I think too, what I, what I realized is it took me to step into something that was painful for me to hear and to, to realize, to admit mm-hmm. to myself, it wasn't pleasant. Yeah. No, it's, it's not fun. No. <laughs> it doesn't feel good to, to go down this road. It does not feel good to learn that the things that you accepted as historical, you know, historically accurate, or maybe not, or that Mm -hmm. your ancestors or your family played a role in this kind of oppression. I was just listening to a podcast called the Vox podcast, and it's Mike Erie's podcast. He was interviewing Phil Vischer, and Phil Vischer was talking about going through his family story back to his grandfather, great-grandfather, and saying, how would this story be different if my relative had been black at that time? You know, mm-hmm. my great grandfather was able to come back from World War I, establish a business, purchase a home, you know, these things. And then just imagine, okay, now let's imagine that my great grandfather was black. Could he have done those same things? And it, it was really helpful. He was saying it was really helpful for him to get that mindset shift of, Maybe white privilege doesn't mean that everything's been handed to me, but it certainly means that I'm coming from a different place than my black brothers and sisters in this country. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example, you know? So I think that that's, that again requires humility and it can be very painful. And if we are strong enough to push through that pain and stick with it, there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. And the other thing you were saying too about empathy yes, this is your daughter and you don't expect everyone to love and care for your daughter the way you do. No one can, or, you know, Mm -hmm. that, and you know, that's not necessarily what you're asking, but I should care too. Like you said, being human. And Mm -hmm. I remember Jamie Corbin on her episode, when she was talking about, she has to go into her kid's school and talk to the principal and say, in fifth grade, you're studying the civil war. And here are some resources that are problematic. And have you considered trying something different because you have black Mm -hmm. students and it's very flippant with their ancestry. And she said, how amazing would it be if the principal responded, you know, last year, actually four white families came in and brought this up, you know, that if we were looking out for each other and standing beside each other and for Mm -hmm. each other, Mm -hmm. how much better that would be. And I read this recently. I can't attribute it to any particular person because I don't know who said it, but it shouldn't have to happen to you for you to care about it. I just really appreciate you sharing your journey through all of this. It's definitely a process as you're growing and learning. I know that, you know, you've not arrived. You don't think that you know everything there is to know now, but just being so open about where you were before and where you are now, I think is so valuable and helpful for people who might be now where you were then. I know it's obviously something that's very close to your heart. It's it's very personal for you. So I just, I really appreciate you being that open to share all of this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Well, before we wrap up and finish our conversation today, I like to end with the lightning round. 
some questions to ask you to get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? All right. Yes, I am. What's the best compliment you've ever received? Well, over this past year, my daughter told me several times, mommy, you are the best mommy in the world. In the sweat and blood that went into this homeschooling year (laughs) and all the mistakes that I've made and all the mess ups, and she still comes out and tells me that she loves me. That is amazing. And, you know, I'm realistic. I know this is not going to last forever. (laughs) So I am just milking it Mm -hmm. and I'm basking in it. This is the balm to my heart, to my Mm. soul. Yeah. You know, she means it because she spent every waking moment of the last year with you. So (laughs) if she still loves you, that's a good sign. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Who's your favorite superhero and why? Wonder Woman, hands down. It's a good one. Yes, Wonder Woman. I don't even know that it needs much of an explanation. I just love watching girls kick butt. Yeah. That's that's that. (laughs) That's a good reason. That's a good one. What is the most delightful word you can think of? Scrumptious. Mm-mm-mm. I think I I told you just how much I love food. Now, having told you about my eating issues (laughs) and journey, Mm -hmm. I know that I'm healed because I love eating good food. When I think of scrumptious, I think of this breakfast. By the way, breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. Mm. And I remember this having this stack of buttermilk ricotta lemon pancakes at Mm. this little restaurant in San Francisco. And oh my goodness, it was scrumptious. Can still remember it. And of course, I had to now that I had all this time on my hands and all that sourdough starter on my <laughs> hands, I had to replicate those pancakes last mm. year at home and they were pretty scrumptious too. So there you go. If you could be on a reality show, what would it be? Dancing with the stars. Really? <laughs> yes. I, I love, love dancing. I love dancing. It makes me so happy. I don't and, think I knew this about you. You're a now, dancer. No, let, let, let's not go that far. <laughs> I, I, I love dancing. After this last year, they need to come up with a show or just invite a bunch of moms, caretakers, whoever to <laughs> and give them a shot. <laughs> I like that idea. I think a lot of people will be happy. Yes. Dancing with the moms. Dancing with the moms. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's going to watch that, but hey, I would watch that. I would. I think a lot of people would watch that. Actually, (laughs) that would be terrific. What are you reading right now? I have four things on the go because that's how I roll. Me too. Book jugglers (laughs) unite. Yep. Me too. Yep. I have a little system that I've designed. Right now I have two hard copy books that I read before going to bed. Okay. One of them is Obama's second book, Autobiography, uh, The Promised Land. Mm -hmm. And oh my goodness, this book, I am just amazed at how accessible it is to someone like me who has very little knowledge about politics. Mm -hmm. But he is making it so simple and entertaining. Mm -hmm. I actually read without falling asleep Mm. five minutes later. Amazing. (laughs) I'm learning a whole lot about the whole process of elections. And now we're in the first year of presidency. It's really interesting. 
And the other one I'm reading, I started reading is Francis Chan's Until Unity. I just started reading it, but I'm looking forward to seeing how he would present it from the biblical standpoint. Jesus said, I'm going to do things through you when, when you're united in your unity, you have the power. That's not been the case, unfortunately, in the past year, as we've learned. So I'm eager to learn more mm -hmm. and to really examine where I stand on all of this because I just realized that I do need some change of heart myself. Mm -hmm. Then the third book that I'm reading currently is an audiobook, and it's called Devoured. Okay. Devoured is a history of eating and food in America, and oh. it, uh, it explains the culture of eating in America. So why we're eating the way we're eating, why we are liking the fast food and the takeouts. Very interesting. It's very good for me to learn about because that's my work, and I need to understand why families are doing what they're doing and, and hopefully maybe help them to understand it better. That's been great. I'm slowly making my way through that in the car whenever I drive. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the last book we're reading is the last um, Lord of the Rings book. Last okay. year, we, I bought a set of Lord of the Rings books for my birthday and we came up with a little tradition. Now we read as a family. And we've been working our way through Lord of the Rings this entire year. We kind of intermingled it with some other shorter books, but it's been really fun. And our seven-year-olds pushed through it. I mean, I don't understand everything. <laughs> I can't remember any of the names. I You like, need to take notes on that one. There's I, I a lot of notes. characters. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, it's it's just yeah. really been really fun to read because I'm, you know, putting the pieces together where I was missing things in the movie. So it's it's all coming together now very nicely. Yeah. That's good That's to hear. <laughs> That's good to hear that you've stuck with it. We're reading The Hobbit right now. Just my 11-year-old and I are reading The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. And he's like, are we going to read Lord of the Rings after this? I'm like, oh, I don't know. That is a commitment. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear you guys have enjoyed it. You've inspired me. My last question for you is, what is saving your life right now? Well, I'm going to be serious on this one. Jesus is saving my life right now. He has been, he still is, and he will be. I don't think that I've gone to him so much before. I, you know, in this last year, especially, there's been so much confusion and brokenness, just sadness in the spirit that mm. he was the only one that I could go to to heal that. Um, and he has been faithful every time. That's good. I think that you are not alone in that. And I think what's really kind of beautiful about it is there's so many of us who are maybe church homeless right now, you know, that we are mm -hmm. not connect as connected with church because of COVID or we're not at our church mm -hmm. anymore for a variety of reasons. And yet when I talk to people who are in that space, they're closer to Jesus than they've ever been. Yeah. I just think that's incredible and speaks so much to the person of Jesus and to how faithful he is to show up even when we haven't been able to meet in a church building or even when we may not be connected with a church family that Jesus is the same. He's still there. And he's that much closer, like mm -hmm. you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability, for your story. 
I know that this is going to be an incredible gift to so many people. My mind is spinning out like all the amazing things that people are going to get out of this conversation. And I'm really grateful for you. I'm grateful for you as a friend and I'm grateful for you that you would spend this time in conversation with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, April. Thank you. And I just want to tell you, I, uh, I know you might not keep this, but my goodness, I just, I'm so proud of what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this. Keep pushing. It's been hard. Um, it's been, I know, but you know how when it is hard, it's just a sign that you are making an impact. Mm. When you get pushed back, it means that this matters. Mm. So just be encouraged by it. it you know, it matters to so many people. And I'm so grateful that you're doing it. So keep going. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. When Kati and I were talking about what the show would look like and what kinds of things we would talk about, I knew that I was not going to be able to get enough of her story. As a friend, I've heard parts of her story before, but I gained so much from her vulnerability and sharing, and I hope you did too. I love how much I could relate to so much of what she shared, even though our lives could not have started off any more differently. And we still have so many things about our lives that are different than each other. But I continued to find myself nodding along as she was talking. I could understand and relate to so much of what she shared. I'm so grateful our paths have crossed and that we're walking through so much of this journey together, parenting and learning more about what it really means to be humble and learn and love our neighbors well. Like Katya said in the show, we all have questions and that's why I'm so excited for next week's interview panel about Juneteenth. Don't forget to send me any questions that you might have and plan to join us next Tuesday the 15th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time on Facebook for our live panel. You can find links to everything we talked about in the episode on the show notes. There's a link there to Katya's TEDx talk, and there's also ways to follow and get in touch with Katya. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now, so you won't miss out on any of the future amazing conversations. We'd also love if you would continue the discussion on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at No Ordinary People Podcast. Today, I'm actually going to sign off with a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Be back next time.